0: Bud Light presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today we salute you, Mr. Pit Crew Water Bottle Squirter. Mr. Pit Crew Water Bottle Squirter. In a world of RPMs and MPGs, you're all about H2O. H2O. Sure, anyone can take a car apart and put it back together again. But not just anyone can squirt water. You've got it in Reach, squeeze, reach, squeeze. Precision timing. One inch off, and you've got a soggy driver and a potential squeegee situation. Watch out, that's water! So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Pit Crew Water Bottle Squitter. Because as far as we're concerned, you're not just in the pits, you are the pits. Mr. Pit you Water Bottle Bud Light Beer, and Bush, St. Louis, standing ovation. As he steps up, get even with George Sisler, and a ground ball back in the middle, and there it is—he's a new all-time hit king in Major League history, number two, five, eight. My, oh my! know Ichiro Suzuki with a huge smile on his face and I'm sure a huge load lifted off his shoulders as the pressure has mounted here incredibly in the last couple of weeks and with misty eyes there is George Sisler's daughter clapping for the new hit champion of all time Ichiro with 258 hits it didn't take him long did it His first to advance here in game number 160. And you know what? I'm glad he didn't break the record in Oakland, aren't you? And Dave is going over to Mrs. Drockelman and congratulating her and showing his appreciation for her attending tonight's game. That's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. What a class act. You're darn right she's got tears in her eyes. And Ichiro, acknowledging the sellout crowd. At the same time, the Texas Rangers infielders all drop their cap to Ichiro, saying congratulations. One of the great moments in baseball history right here. A record that really was kind of kind of laying in dust piles it laid in dust piles for 84 years and finally this young man from japan comes in and establishes the new mark absolutely incredible
1: talk baseball podcast network proudly presents backwards k Pod, and now
2: here's the host of the show jake robinson I never move a slow-mo, welcome to my dojo, those other pods are so-so, I'm chill like bro, yo, focus like a GoPro, rip it up this promo, check out the scoreboard, preach I'm going no-nos, it's going, it's going, it's going, yo, it's going. your heart just stopped, cause Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated, I mean it, pull up the scraps, pull it down and read it, written, produced, directed, and mixed, dub on your lips and Ozzy Smith backflips, pick a tip, any tip, get onto it, I got ridiculous pods without forcing it, you sit at home, crying. Like a girl While I spread the gospel Around the world Yo The pods are written Behind tracks That mix in Smooth with the groove To make ears wanna listen Add a little gut ain't a rhythm to back it up Another show to my name Now I'ma stack em up You think another white rap bag But this ain't no act Jack My hobbies and rhymes Some people try to be black But that's about time I come out Call the show PKP and let me turn it out Yo Nick, Jake the Snake Born in 71 do you know what time it is I'm packing them guns Your experience I've been a witness to glory and that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the Incredible, the Pod Animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kakalecki, Hat Man, hat Podcast Machine, back in a Captain Kirk chair. Shields down, boltons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's good freaks? What's cracking? I'm so happy to be back doing what I love to do most in the world. Hello everybody, it's your boy Jake the Snake Robson. I got your hook up. Holler if you hear me. Wanna welcome everyone in my audience. Back into my sandbox to build these sandcastles with me. From all the OGs who have stood strong behind me these past seven years. To all the newbies who may have been surfing the net. Happened to get barreled up in this wave right here and decided to ride it to shore. Thank you so much from the bottom of my dark, empty soul. I have nothing but love for anyone who takes time out of their 24-hour day to listen to me pontificate the seams. And this is... Backwards K-Pod, a weekly documentary of all the profound characters, moments, pop cultures, and in this week's case, the stadiums that have bridged the game through the generations as it has evolved into a global global phenomenon that we see today and let's get right after this week there really hasn't been any change in the standings since last week's show other than the Cubbies look like they are ready to take control of that second wild card spot in the National League which would leave San Francisco the Red Snakes and resurgent fish fighting for that last National League wild card spot still a little less than a month of baseball left but the Bills and Cubs Look pretty comfortable. I said last week the Phillies weren't quite there for me to call it, but I'm calling it now. Filthy is going to the postseason, and the Cubs look really comfortable as wild card number two in the AL West. Seattle, Houston, and Texas. Uh well, you know, they haven't played their most consistent baseball in the past week, ten days. The Rangers are literally, literally falling like leaves in the desert. Their bullpen is in shambles, and who could have ever predicted that, you know, the Texas Rangers might wilt in the uh you know, the September uh oppressive heat and oh yeah, I guess that would be me. They they are truly falling apart. The Astros fell apart against the last place Yankees last weekend, and the Mariners, who were one of the hottest teams after July 1st in the Majors, they've cooled off considerably as the M's have shown. They are, well, they're probably one of the streakiest teams in baseball. One time they were eight games back in the West, then they got white hot, looked like world beaters, they come back, took sole possession of the West, and the past nine, ten, twelve games, they've been really inconsistent. They haven't been able to capitalize on the failings of Texas and Houston like they really could have. If Julio Rodriguez isn't in like this parallax destroyer worlds mode, which is A still damn good ball player. Other guys like Ty France and Suarez and Teoscar Hernandez, they need to pick up the slack. And that's been a very hot and cold proposition for Seattle all year. The team is built on the foundation of pitching. And Kirby and Castillo have been less than stellar their last couple times out. So, all in all, pretty much the same picture as last week, except the Cubs are looking sustainable in that second NL wildcard spot now. It looks like that catcher out there is ready to throw down a second base, which is my cue to clear this platform. Kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye, so I can load up uh, all you guys on my BKP time channel choo here at Terrapin Station, as I call All aboard. Uh-huh. And I'm going to set our time and destination this week to June 27th, 1999, as we will be taking a look at the now 14th oldest stadium in the majors, T-Mobile Park, or the stadium formerly known as Safeco, as we bend space and time in the baseball universe to get to the very... First game in the stadium's history I want to remind you that just last month I gave you the story about the Seattle Pilots and their debacle of a one year season in the majors during the 1969 season if you haven't heard that pilot story I recommend you check that out as the Mariners story it piggybacks off the flight of the Pilots and you can almost listen to these shows as part one or part two of you know Seattle baseball, or you can check it out after listening to this, like a prequel, more like you know, hopefully more like Godfather and less like Star Wars. Hopefully, anyway, if you remember, the pilots played in the municipal six stadium or six field, which was you know a proper name for the unhealthy baseball venue all the time. They're bleeding money, and the citizens of King County are less than enthused about public financing for a stadium to house a baseball team. And this will be the same situation that plays out before breaking ground for Safeco. The voters in the PAC Northwest are pretty consistent, if they are anything. But I digress with the Pilots... Having one foot out the door and headed to Milwaukee in the waiting into the waiting arms of Bud Sealing, the state 's two democratic senators. Warren G. Magnuson and Henry M. Jackson threatened to sue baseball and break their precious uh, reserve clause, antitrust suit if the Pilots were to leave Seattle, and they wouldn't be replaced with an expansion franchise. I told you all about this in that story. The same tactics that Missouri Senator Warren Symington used against MLB in 1968 when the A's bolted Kansas City for Oakland. So, after a few years of haggling, when the Pilots did become the Brewers, baseball settled and said, we'll give you a team in 1977 if you have a bona fide Major League Baseball stadium. And again, the Washington voters hem and hawed, and after a couple votes, the citizens of King County capitulated, and the Mariners' kingdom would be finished for the M's in the first year of expansion. And... That's the gist. I mean, I'm giving you the footnotes if you haven't heard the play to the Seattle Pilots. I highly suggest you do so at com or any of the platforms you use to listen to your pods because the two pods are really looking at the history of Seattle baseball and Major League Baseball. And look, far being from me to tell any taxpayer what they should or shouldn't be comfortable paying for, The Washington voter is pretty consistent in their desire to not publicly finance stadiums for pro teams. It's always been like pulling teeth to get the majority on board there. I mean, look at the Seattle Superstars, right? One of the most stable foundation teams in the NBA that now plays in Oklahoma City. And it's not like Seattle didn't have baseball heritage in their butt before the haphazard pilots crashed somewhere on Mount St. Helens upon arrival. In 1872, Seattle had an amateur team called the Dolly Parton, but professional baseball didn't ingratiate itself into the region until 1890 with the establishment of the Pacific Northwest Baseball League. Soon thereafter, franchises would be awarded to Spokane, Tacoma, and Seattle. The Seattle Giants were an extremely successful club. They would change their name to the Indians and then finally settle with the Rainiers. They were well-loved in that city, and the game saw many sellouts as fans packed the crib to the top. They ate hot dogs, drank beer, enjoyed the exploits of Seattle baseball legends like Fred Hutchinson and Earl Averill. Going to the uh, 1960s baseball's interest in Seattle, it's waning And that takes us into the dumpster fire that was the Seattle Pilots. So finally, the Mariners are the new kid on the American League block in 1977. They had their Kingdome, typical 1970s concrete, multi-purpose monstrosity. And the Kingdome wasn't without its detractors and naysayers from day one, but on April 16, 1977, 57,762 fans crashed the turnstiles for the first game in Mariners history. The Kingdom would host an All-Star game in 1979, but the M's didn't win a playoff series until 1995 uh, in that park, the same year that voters rejected funding for a new stadium. Literally every single owner, that had possession of the Mariners since 1977, complained about the Kingdom venue. King County owned the massive concrete building, which had opened in 1976, with the NFL Seattle Seahawks as their primary tenant. Oh Again, like I said, it's just another one of these multi-purpose shit boxes from the 70s that was there to generate as much cash from as many different events without really any care for fan experience. Like most of these stadiums, they played the football way better than baseball. And as a series of Mariners owners come and go, all of them make the arguments to a man that the kingdom just lacked the revenue-producing streams of the newer stadiums, especially after Camden Yards explodes on the scene in 1992 and all the stadiums that follow in her mold. The Kingdom is falling woefully behind. The Mariners' Kingdom lease was set to expire in 1996, and team owners were not inclined to renew it. They wanted a new stadium, and they wanted the tightly-fisted Washingtonian taxpayers to pay for it. On July 11, 1995, King County Executive Gary Locke recommended the public pay about 65% of the cost for the new stadium to be built on county land south of the kingdom. The cost of the build was estimated to be anywhere between $243 million and $278 million. It would have a retractable roof and be designed to maximize team revenue. Gary Locke and his task force basically said, without such a stadium, uh, without such a stadium, the Mariners had no future in Seattle. And to put this money in perspective, almost thirty years later, so the estimate was two hundred forty-three million to two hundred seventy-eight million dollars in nineteen ninety-five. Today, in twenty twenty-three, that's yeah, uh, you know, that's four hundred forty-eight million dollars to $558 million, respectively. Responding to the task force recommendation, the Washington state legislator passed a financing plan that would raise sales tax in King County from 82.2 percent to 8.3. The county approved the plan, put it on the ballot for the King County citizens to decide in a July vote, the Mariners gained support with their Refuse to Lose campaign on the field and by being in the postseason hunt for the first time in club history, many thought, ah, this might have a chance. But it wasn't enough as the stadium financing plan was defeated by less than 1% of the vote. The Mariners' ownership group, led by John Ellis, kept intimating through the Seattle press that if this legislature Legislative measure falls fails on the ballot, the team would be forced to move. But something crazy began to happen as the team led by future Hall of Famers Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, fireballing Southpaw uh, Big Unit Randy Johnson, they caught fire and pet fever literally gripped the city of Seattle. And every night, the kingdom was among the most crowded and loudest venues during that playoff stretch. And The team fed off the waking, sleeping giant of a baseball fan base. On October 8th, 1995, in what is generally regarded as the game that saved baseball in Seattle... The city is on fire when Edgar Martinez hits a game-winning rope that scores Ken Griffey Jr. against the New York Yankees in the ALDS game-clincher walk-off. And miraculously, in the first playoff appearance in team history, the Mariners find themselves in the ALCS versus the Cleveland Indians, fighting it out for a shot to World Series with all the uncertainty looming in the background. We now know that that miraculous refuse-to-lose season for 1995 will end at the hands of that talented tribe team. But behind the scenes, during the championship series, the owner of John Ellis meets with Washington State Governor Mike Lowry and other state legislative, state legislative leaders, Mike Lowry. And he calls it for a, a special session of the state legislature to deal with the stadium issues once and for all and after much vociferous debate the state legislates and authorized a tax package to fund a $320 million crib the package was then approved by the King County Council the taxes would be applied on food and drinks sold at restaurants, bars and taverns all inside of uh, King County it would also be applied to car and truck rentals as well as all the tickets sold at the new ballpark and it was agreed upon by all parties except for the taxpayers in king county that vote uh it was agreed upon, it was agreed upon by all the parties except for the taxpayers in king county uh and the legislative branch decided that voter approval was not required for this initiative so for the first time in the club's 19-year history The Seattle Mariners had security and an eye to the future. But the path to fruition from the outset of the project was not a smooth transition. A public facilities district, the PFD, was created to own and operate the stadium as well as oversee its construction. Right off the rip, the Mariners... And the PMT began to wrangle over countless design details as well as arguments from both camps with the county council over the team's lease. When council members expressed concern about the Mariners' desires for this new state to be ready by opening day 1999, Ellis is done with the bureaucratic nonsense. On September 14th, 1996, Ellis announces that the Seattle Mariners organization organization is now withdrawing from the project, effective immediately. And he assured the audience, I ain't bluffing. This uh, announcement, had caught the attention of Washington Senator Slate Gordon, and he jumped into the now political fray. Senator Gordon had been instrumental in finding buyers willing to keep them in the Emerald City. And along with Seattle Mayor Norm Rice... They pressed forward towards a resolution and soon thereafter, the terms of a 20-year lease were settled by December 23rd. In return, the M's agreed to delay the stadium opening from April of 1999 to July of that year and they would pay for any cost overruns and the City Council and PFD agreed to all the other conditions. On March 8th, 1997, Literally thousands of King County Seattleite seam heads showed up to the groundbreaking ceremony prepared to lend a hand. The site was 19.5 acres south of the Royal Brom Way between 1st and 4th Avenue South. The construction schedule was fast for any stadium in modern baseball, let alone one with a movable roof. Making on-time schedule was a challenge as over 10,000 change orders were documented, most of these at the behest of Ellis and the Mariners. One contractor joked in the press that the project was like trying to change a tire on a car going 75 miles per hour down the highway. By the time the new ballpark was completed and open, the mistakes, changes, orders, cost overruns, it had added an additional ninety million dollars to the tab, or in today's perspective, one hundred eighty million dollars. The fine total of five hundred seven, the final total of five hundred seventeen point six million dollars was a record for U.S. ballparks at the time. Five hundred seventeen point six million dollars in nineteen ninety nine is worth about one point one billion dollars today, and that's billion with a B, folks. In the 2023 economy, the 27-month completion time of the yard was one of the quickest of the modern retro ballparks. The owners paid the 45 million dollars plus the overruns, and then received a 40 million dollar payout from a Seattle-based insurance company to call it Safeco Field. An eventual 38, I'm sorry, 380 million dollars. Almost 750 million today was paid by the taxpayers of Washington State. Now, there was some blowback to that safecom move amongst a segment of King County citizens. If you remember, their last vote on the ballot was against public funding and raising of taxes before the Mariners and the state legislators took the vote out of their hand after the 380 million dollars incurred in county taxes. Uh, that the citizens had handed over to secure the stadium, the team now slaps a corporate name on their retro throwback stadium. And i told you before, as soon as I see a corporate name on the side of your yard, in my eyes, the stadium loses value. Based on that alone, I can't put a stadium with a corporate name at number one. No matter how beautiful and pristine the, the building is, I mean, first of all, Whatever happens to all that money? Like, why don't the Pirates use that PNC loot to get more players? Oh, yeah, that's right. Because that money rarely ever goes back into the team. It goes straight into the owner's pocket. Corporate sponsorships do not help the team at all. They only benefit owners. And the very rarely ever... Stick. I mean, Enron, Edison, Pat Bell, I think the Giants are in their third corporate name now, right? So, look, some of the, well, in fact, many of the citizens of King County were miffed to see the team sell out to a corporate entity instead of allowing the community to have a say on the name. Especially considering the money the citizens put towards the build that they had voted against. Initially, Safeco Field was inspired by the earlier builds of the 90s in Baltimore, Cleveland, and Denver. It combined nostalgic touches such as a red brick exterior, hand operated scoreboards, as well as the modern amenities such as restaurants, wide concourses, and a giant video screen in center field. And here we are, folks, safe and sound. (laughs) Pulling up into this brand new baseball cathedral in the Pacific Northwest. And the gates are now opening for the first time. As you walk in, the Seattle Symphonic Orchestra is playing the theme from the 2001 Space Odyssey. By the way, for those of you too young to know the 2000 Space Odyssey uh, reference there, uh, it's Nature Boy Ric Flair's intro music. If you're too young to know what Ric Flair is, you might want to make sure you have permission from your parents to listen to me. But again, I digress. As the music is being blasted out, the roof is majestically, quietly rolling open. Longtime Mariners play my play announcer, and seriously... One of my absolute favorites, top five, the late, great Dave Niehaus, donning a tuxedo. He threw out the first pitch. And after 22 and a half years of playing their home games on artificial turf, and after five arduous years of fighting for a new crib, the Mariners were treated to an opening day of open blue skies, real grass and dirt under the cleats. Not to mention the expansive new clubhouse and the cedar-lined dugout bench. And check it out, Breach. I'm going to take a break right here. Get some fluids in me. Now that we've made it to opening day in this ballpark, let me step out. Pay some bills. Please support the grassroots sponsors that support the grassroots baseball pod. Laparose Hand Cleaner has a buy one, get one deal. These are not just wipes you find in a store. This is genius shit. I mean, even... They even have like this hand cleaner for buffalo wings. I'm telling you, it gets all the heat and the smell off your hands. Buy one, get one deal. Use code summer twenty three to get in on that. On in on that. And look, I'll just get pod squats to tell you all about it. BRB, you freaks. I'll see you on the other side of the break.
1: Howdy, y'all. It's the Pod Squad, Gage Guillen, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laparose Hand Cleaners, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand cleaner. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy foods or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fish and hand cleaner get rid of bait pump, but the crawfish hand cleaner, wing hand cleaner removes the spicy bits around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Lafaroa's Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal. Hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap seafood hand cleaners. Buy one, get one. We only advertise products on Backwards cave Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there is nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelly, spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to BKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm gone fishing.
0: it's Felix Hernandez, the 2-2. He got it! 34 years! 119 games! It's finally happened! A perfect game by 23rd perfect game in Major League history. Third this year, Matt King of the Giants. Philip Bumber did it here in Seattle against the Mariners. And now Felix Hernandez. He puts his name in the record box. What a perfecto. Test
2: Team Heads, welcome back, and before I hit the bricks, I was telling you the story of the ballpark formerly known as Safeco Field, now recognized as T-Mobile Park, and if there's a theme that's been established by the citizens of King County when it comes to publicly financed stadiums, there is a strong base of voters who believe all that money is better allocated in other areas. And you see it during the pilots while they are struggling to sell the MLB product in the county-owned 6th field while voters turn back public financing initiatives on the build of the kingdom. And if I'm not mistaken, the voters rebuffed the higher taxes twice on the ballot for the kingdom during the mid-'70s before acquiescing. In 1996, the Washington voters are against higher taxes to pay for a ballpark as it falls short by 1% of the vote. Nevertheless, state legislators and Mariners owner John Ellis, they strike a deal and they figure out a way to keep the citizens from voting on it. And here we are today on July 15, 1999. It's a big, big deal what's going on down in the Emerald City The M's are 42 and 45. They're a struggling team caught in a down year cycle between the playoff run years of 1995 and 97. But the team's struggles were pretty much the last thing on Mariners fans' mind as they walked into their new home. Baseball had been saved in King County, Washington as the fans shuffled past the deteriorating concrete kingdom on their way to their new pearly gates of baseball heaven. Gone were the legendary king dogs, they used to sell the dome. That was replaced with sushi and ivor's Iver, clam chowder, among other progressive delicacies. Excited conversations about the team among fans were periodically drowned out by the sound of trains whistling as they rode up the tracks behind the stadium. For those who grew up with only the Kingdom experience or, regrettably, in conjunction with the Sixfield experience, this was truly a baseball experience. The reaction from fans and the local media was mostly oohs and ahs. The fans had sight lines outside the stadium, down the left field line, highlighting the beauty of downtown Seattle, as well as Elliott Bay and the Olympia Mountains from the terrace high atop the left field grandstand. There's really not a bad scene in the house, as there are great views of the field on all three levels of the structure, and unlike Kingdom, there were plenty of restrooms to handle a full house. The upgrade over Kingdom was simply amazing. Now, from the Mariners' perspective, the stadium has an incredible amount of of premier seating to generate the types of revenue streams they could have never imagined in the kingdom. Most tickets were relatively affordable, $5 bleacher seats, $32 for field box seats, but Samco also had $1,000 seats that require a charter license for a fee of around $12,000 to $20,000 for the life of the 20-year lease, and that does not include the price of the ticket.
1: Kind of sounds like the PLS
2: system the NFL uses, kinda. It had a section on no-play called the Diamond Club, where seats, parking, and pregame all-you-can-eat buffet it could run you about one hundred ninety-five dollars back then. And most importantly, it had sixty-nine catered and furnished luxury suites, priced from ninety-four grand to one hundred sixty-four k a season. The long-sought-after stadium deal filled with potholes along the road, quickly paid off its value. Attendance for those first two seasons topped out at $6.6 million, the best in the majors at that time. By the end of 2002, the Mariners had paid off their $100 million line of credit for the cost of overruns and the payment on the public debt. It was ahead of schedule. Some of that payback can be attributed to the action on the field, but the lion's share of the credit is just a sheer reflection of the beautiful and attractiveness of T Mobile Park. A couple notes about our prominent features the retractable roof. It became the fourth stadium in Major League Baseball to go this route after Roger Center in Toronto, Chase Field in Arizona, and Miller Park in Milwaukee. And sidebar here, folks, I've been giving you the history of these ballparks. Starting with the oldest active stadium, Fenway, all the way up here to this Meredith Cathedral. Now, I skipped the Alameda, Mausoleum Mount Oakland, and that you know the trop and Tampa because well, you know, quite honestly, they swallow and they aren't worth my time and research and execution. Maybe the very last show I do 20 years from now on my deathbed, I'll put them out. Hopefully by then, you'll they'll be long gone. And then I'll toss a series clincher in our throwback crib wing of our yard collections here at Backwards K Pod. You know, kind of like an nephew to all the people who waited till I was dying to finally listen, right? So, look, I skipped those two. But in my research this week, I found out that I had skipped Chase Field by accident. So... Chase Field is the 13th oldest crib in the biz, and T-Mobile Park is now the 14th oldest. Don't you worry, Snakes fans. I meant no disrespect. Just an honest mistake. I'll have the history of Chase Field next month, and mid it in Houston will be the last active ballpark for the calendar year. I do have a couple of throwbacks left over as well, so my bad, Arizona, but I got you coming. Okay. Anyway. Back to this roof. I believe this is where I was before my tangential apology there. The T-Mobile roof is unique from prior concepts in that it serves more like an umbrella rather than an actual roof. It doesn't like seal shut. With Seattle being known for its healthy precipitation... The umbrella style roof is designed to keep the stands and feel dry, and it is an incredible marvel of engineering that protects from the elements of the Pac Northwest, but it still allows you to see in and out of the park. A uh, lot of fresh air to freely waft through the structure, and allows the fan to stay dry, enjoy the natural temperatures, and put the roof away when it's not needed. Kind of like an umbrella, right? On December 19, 2018, the field said on" to Safeco and hello to T-Mobile Park in a 25-year agreement for $87.5 million with an annual value of around $3.5 million in which the Mariners claim to use for their yearly maintenance and capital improvements. The Mariners are obligated under the current lease to make significant capital upgrades to the ballpark, and the team projects they will invest, uh, they project they're going to invest about $100 million in the first decade of renovations. This past offseason, the team spent $55 million to upgrade the park, get rid of the old press box, they took the... Uh, Complete renovation tactics of the Diamond Club section and press area behind a plate and replaced it with new premium seats and a new media area. To all the team's credit, I got to give it to them. All these renovations were privately funded, not... Part of the allocated funds from the King County Lodging Tax that I explained earlier. They call it the lodging tax, but as I told you, with the particulars, it's much more than just lodging. But fair enough, none of that has been touched by the owners, and last off-season work was privately funded. And boy, I tell you, in today's climate, where one out of every five o- team owners is trying to bend their respective cities over the barrel and hold them for ransom, Until, you know, they get this, that, or the other. It's good to hear the Mariners' ownership appears to be responsible with the spending and placing the burden on the King County citizens. And, folks, this is it. I'm going to put that bottle backwards K-Pod in the books. Wrap this puppy up. Now, before I do the UTEP two-step crossover out of here, as we make our way back to Terrapin Station... Where your loved ones are waiting. I want to give you guys a final review of all the info I just threw at you and maybe some things I may have missed. T Mobile Park, stadium formerly known as Safeco Field, located at 1250 First Avenue South in Seattle, Washington, 47.591 degrees north by 122.333 degrees west. It broke ground March 8, 1997, and it opened on July 15, 1999. Two All Stars played there, 2001, 2023. It was done expeditiously despite all the challenges in 27 months. It has a seating capacity of 47,929. The largest inside attendance of Safeco Slash T-Mobile was WrestleMania 19 in 2003 to watch the immortal Hulk Hogan beat Vince McMahon to a bloody pulp. The playing service is a hybrid mixture of Kentucky Bluegrass and Perennial Rye, it opened July 15, 1999 versus the San Diego Padres with a 2-0 lead and the eighth, Jamie Moyer turned the ball over to J- Jose Mesa who blew the save and took the L in the stadium opener. The architecture firm was the Seattle-based NBBJ. The construction team was run by Hunt Chihuit. The roof design and construction was the work of Erection Company Incorporated. That's what she said. The park is owned by the Washington King County Stadium Authority. The initial cost was $517.6 million, which is equivalent to $1.1 billion in the 2023 economy. Left field is adjacent to Royal Bromway in the north. Third base runs along 1st Avenue south in the west. In the east, you have a first base that is adjacent to South Atlantic Street. And in the east, you have right field along 3rd Avenue. Left field pole is 331 feet from home plate. The left field power alleys max out at 390 feet. Center field is 405 feet. The right field power alley reaches 386 feet. And the right field foul pole is 326 feet from the dish. And the field, uh, the fences on the field, they stand 8 feet high. There are nine elevators, 11 escalators, 76 restrooms, 4,998 light fixtures, 1,231 gates or doors, 25 miles of piping throughout the baseball cathedral, and the scoreboard dimensions are 56 feet by 60 feet. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story about the history of T-Mobile Park. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed doing the work and telling you the story, and I promise you, Freaks, I'll try to be better next week. I love this audience. I tell you, thanks for all the support and the always growing base And please, remember to share the show with all your little c buddies. And here's the deal. I'm never going to charge you for the baseball content here at BKP. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play subscriptions. It's never going to happen. I'm about to work. I'm about getting better. I'm about spreading the baseball gospel around the fucking globe. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke, and I'm gonna keep it consistent like your boy, Mama, Mama Mookie bets your freaks. So with T-Mobile Park story getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I now turn my attention back to our Never Say Die baseball Hydra. I reach into my kimono, pull out my steel, and chop <laughs> the head off that beast. Only to see two more baseball topics. Up here in its place. Next week, I'm going to break down the life and career of former Tiger Southpaw ace Mickey Goddamn Lowitz. What a stud. I can't wait to get after it. But look, y'all already know the deal. That's another story for another pot here at Backwards K-Pot, where we collect ball players and their stories. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. If you can please hook a good brother up with rates and reviews, I would surely appreciate that. It helps promote my show and my profile on Google search, and it affords me the opportunity to continue to do the thing that I love to do most in this world, and that's talk baseball with a fine seam head such as yourself. You can always email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. Our YouTube channel is Backwards K Pod. Pound that subscribe icon. You can follow us on the social media site, formerly known as Twitter, at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal handle there is at J Robbie One. That's J R O B B I E, and the number one. But most of the times, I'm just hanging out with the OGs of the greatest private baseball group on Facebook, and that's the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Facebook group page. Answer the very real questions, very easy questions, so that I know you're not a troll bot, and come on in and join the chaos. And that's the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network private Facebook group page. And check it out. If you live or plan to take a trip to Denver, Colorado, do me a favor. Check my dudes, Bruce and Danny, out at the National Ballpark Museum out there on Blake Street, just a long fly ball from Coors Field. Yeah. You never know what you're going to see in there, as they have an incredible baseball time portal with all the stadium paraphernalia on display. You you never know who you might meet, as Brandon Belt was there just a couple of days ago. And you might never know what you hear over the speakers, as Danny and Bruce are big fans of the BKP, and they are prone to play a show or two of mine over the speakers while you explore That's the National Ballpark Museum, Blake Street, Denver, Colorado. Just a long fly ball from Coors Field. And tell them the snake sent you. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch with their noses in the phone, they're looking bored and unproductive, A-L. By all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shea Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year. You go to hell, Andy Paddock. See you next week, freaks. Peace.